Well, hi everyone and welcome to the Effective Teaching Podcast. I'm Dan Jackson and today we are talking about inquiry-based learning and I have one of my good friends, Trevor McKenzie, with us all the way from Canada. He's the author of two books, Dive Into Inquiry and The Inquiry Mindset, and he joins me now from Canada. So good morning, Trevor. Hi there, Dan. Thank you so much for having me and uh, it's been a long time coming, so I'm thrilled to be here and, and connect with your audience and the teachers that follow you. So thanks again. No, thank you so much for giving up your time to, to come and you know hang out with me this morning. Uh, for me, it's this morning. You know, I, this is six o'clock <laughs> and my time. But what time is it over there at the moment? It, it's just after lunch. It's uh, just after 1 p.m. And so and that's the beauty of technology, right? We, we can connect globally at a time that works for both of us. And, and I'm having my afternoon coffee. You're probably having your morning coffee. So it's it's perfect timing for both of us. <laughs> Yeah, look, if if I was having my morning coffee, I'd be quite happy. I haven't gotten that far yet this morning. <laughs> wow, I'm honored. Thank you for, for sacrificing that and, and, yeah, bearing with me through our chat without a coffee. Oh, that's right. Actually, it wakes up my children when I use it, so that's why I haven't, <laughs> haven't made it yet. So uh, we're talking about inquiry-based learning, and for some of our listeners, they might actually be familiar with the whole phrasing of inquiry-based learning, or IBL, as it often gets referred to, um, but... We, often, we are, do hear a lot about project-based learning and there are similarities between the two. Can you just tell me very briefly what inquiry-based learning is and, and um, how it might link to PBL for those people who are familiar with PBL? Yeah, you know, and that's a big question, Dan. You know, um, that, that's something that we unpack over several podcast episodes. So I'll try to encapsulate a few underpinnings of inquiry and we could talk about what that looks like in a really practical implementational sense. Uh, but, you know, one underpinning is that the, the role of the teacher and the learner is shifts in the inquiry based classroom so that, you know, the teacher slowly becomes more of a facilitator of learning, uh, more of someone that is guiding students through a process of learning. And in that shifting of the role of the teacher, there's also a shifting in the role of the student where they're doing more of the heavy lifting of learning, whether it's identifying those ungoogleable questions, as I like to refer to them, and, and exploring those questions in really authentic ways. Uh, identifying research pathways that are going to ha help students deepen their understanding of those questions, and then sharing their learning to an authentic audience so that the partnership in learning isn't just between the student and the teacher, it's one of which actually impacts an audience beyond the four walls of the classroom. You know, you know an, an, under, an underpinning of the, of the inquiry classroom really is that questions are the heart of the classroom, and whether it's the teacher's question or the students' questions, those questions guide us through our curriculum and guide us through learning experiences. And there, there are a lot of similarities with project-based learning. Uh, I think project-based learning, in, in my experience, tends to be uh, kind of uh, compartmentalized or structured as, as a project. And, and there's a start point and an end point, there's a beginning and there's a due date. Whereas in the inquiry-based classroom, it really is, it's how we live and breathe. It's how we learn. You know, when the bell goes at the end of the day at three o'clock, our students go home and, and how they live and breathe at home in their learning is how they live and breathe in their learning at school. And so it really is the overarching way that teaching and learning uh, happens in our classrooms through inquiry. And, and it really isn't a project. It really isn't something that, you know, I'm doing inquiry on a Friday as an assignment. It's really the, the framework and the process of which learning occurs. Yeah, yeah I, I've got to say that that there is a understanding too in project-based learning where the project is the whole um, way that you learn. But I know we're talking here about really questioning is the way that we're, we're learning, and that's that's the underpinning thing here is the other questions that go go with the learning. So, why would someone want to use inquiry-based learning in their classroom? Why would a teacher want to do this? 
Well, you know, inquiry has been around for generations. Inquiry isn't anything new. And, and I, I think inquiry is much more a part of the global conversation in education right now, because not only is the world shifting, you know, we are so much more connected as evidenced by this podcast. I mean, you know, North America and you're in Australia, but also, you know, how hyper connected our students are to information and to one another and to really authentic connections with spaces in the world that they never could have had connections with before. And, and because of that connectedness, schools and districts and organizations are looking at moving away from an over-standardized curricula and assessment framework to something that's much more personalized and something that's much more agile and contextual. And, and inquiry-based learning is one framework that allows that transition to occur. Uh, you know, I, I think when teachers are considering whether or not they want to adopt an inquiry approach and, and teach from an inquiry stance, I think that's because they value process over product. And, and products are important, but no longer are products as important as they were, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, uh, because the, the process of learning and those competencies or, you know, 21st century skills or learning assets, whatever you call them, that's really what we're trying to sharpen and nurture throughout a, a student's experience in our schools so that when they leave our schools, it's not just what they know, it's, it's, it truly is what they can do with what they know. And those competencies are, are critical. So I think teachers that are looking at adopting inquiry as a stance, as an approach, value those competencies, they value uh, the process over the product, and then they really value the student experience. And they're looking at really empowering their students and taking a more active role in their learning because they, they feel like the world is calling for that. Complacency is no longer good enough. We need students who are advocates for their learning so that they can be advocates for positive change in the world around us. So, and, and that's a deeply personal question, isn't it, Dan? You know, I, I, I can't seem to, you know, I, I wouldn't pretend that I can, you know, tell teachers that are listening why they should adopt an inquiry approach. But in my work supporting schools around the world, those are the reasons that I see schools make that shift towards teaching from an inquiry stance. Yeah. And I'm going to say from the perspective of focusing on the process too, I think that is way more important than the product, to be honest, because it's the process is the learning process, isn't it? It's, it's how you actually go about learning that I think is really important because if you can teach a student how to go about the process of learning. It sets them up for life because in life, you know, what you have to learn shouldn't really matter if you've learned the skills of how to learn. If you know how to do the whole inquiry process of asking questions, asking more questions, doing the research that then leads to more questions and that, that kind of snowballing effect that happens in learning and that happens in inquiry-based learning particularly because that you've got that question, finding an answer that then causes more questions to happen. Yeah. Uh, and that's how you then find your solutions to the problems that are coming up in life, that are at your workplace, that are anywhere. And so if we teach and focus on that process, I think it sets, it sets our students up really well for their future. Yeah, you, you raise a really good point, Dan, and that is that product versus process balance. And and products are important, but if we have a classroom culture where that all we're doing our products and all we're taking in our assignments after assignments after assignments, what we're doing is we're breeding a culture of learning that is really focused on the numbers and the grades reflected in those products. But if we also value process, what we could do is adopt more of a portfolio collection of artifacts of learning, where over time students are reflecting on their learning, they're self-assessing, they're co-assessing, they're co-designing. And then students can look at that portfolio and pick one product from that portfolio to be their formal assessment. So the product still matters, 
But now we've shifted our attention and our focus to the learning and students have a voice in the reflection and the self-assessment of the learning in that they can then share a product that they'd like a teacher to assess more formally. So, you know, I, I think an inquiry misconception is that products don't matter. Products absolutely matter, but there's a balance there. Just as there's a balance between the teacher's role and the student's role and how those shift over time in the classroom, there's a balance there as well. What we don't want to uh, have teachers consider is, is just a free for all, right? Like, you know, imagine 30 kids in a classroom and it's like raucous and, and you know, dust smokes and there are fires in the corner and, and that's not student agency. It, it can get messy, but there's a co-design and there's a partnership in learning. And, and that looks like many things, but it definitely looks, looks like explicit planning and in, intentional behaviors and decisions being made from the teacher and the student. And so, you know, I just wanted to draw some light to something really powerful that you said, which was, what is that balance between product and process? And, and you know, kind of unpacking that a bit for the listeners here to consider as they move forward and considering that in their own practice. Yeah, so can you give us a few examples of how you've gone about using inquiry-based learning in your classroom when you've, had, when you've been teaching it? Yeah, that's a big question, Dan, and it's taken me years to get to the place that I am now. So as I describe some of these things, this isn't a flick of the switch. You know, many of the schools that I work with in adopting inquiry, you know, we go through a process of kind of three years of Trevor coming, supporting those schools. So again, it, it doesn't happen overnight. And, and I suppose, you know, where I am now is, is again, it's, it's, inquiry all the time. It's not inquiry on Friday afternoons because the kids have behaved well throughout the week. It's this is how we live and we breathe in the classroom. And for me at the start of the school year, so here in Canada, we start the school year in September and we go into the end of June. So we're a 10 month school year. I know it's different in Australia for many of your listeners. And, and I bring that up because across that 10 months, across that school year, we are slowly scaffolding to a space where students have much more agency over learning than they did at the beginning of the year, because many of our students are new to the inquiry framework. They're new to the experience of student agency. So we start in what we call the shallow ends of the inquiry cycle or the inquiry pool, where the teacher is re really leading the class through inquiry. You know, there's one question we're all exploring, and that could be a unit of study. There's you know, a range of resources that I've provided the students to explore. Um, there's a product and there are artifacts throughout the process that I've assigned. And so you can hear the role of the teacher at the beginning of the year is quite direct. You know, the, the, the entire class is following one inquiry, one question together. Whereas at the end of the year, after we've gone through four different cycles of inquiry, uh, slowly increasing agency across those cycles. At the end of the year, students experience what we call free inquiry, which is they're each exploring their own concept, uh, their own question. They're doing all of the research where I'm supporting them and finding some of those spaces that are going to deepen their understanding of their question. Uh, they choose their products and, and then they share it to an authentic audience. Typically, uh, we have an inquiry gala where, where you know, uh, community members and family members and other classrooms come and, and hear about the learning. So th there's a scaffolding in my classroom. Uh, but the, the question is really critical. You know, at the start of the year, it's the teacher's question. Slowly, it becomes the student's question. And, and there's a partnership there. Uh, and, and definitely really having the students understand the process and, and drawing the curtain back on the process. So you know, initially, I, I led into your question, Dan, with, wow, that's a big question. There are so many elements to an inquiry unit, you know, uh, what it looks like and sounds like and feels like. But, you know, broad stroke across the school year, you know, I, I really wanted to reflect that there is scaffolding for students so that they don't feel overwhelmed, 
and they don't feel anxious and that they're slowly acquiring these competencies and skills that are going to help them be successful with agency over learning. Yeah. And that, that scaffolding that you get, I know when I was reading your books, you talked about using the understanding by design scaffolding that's in there. And you actually go through that process with your students, which I think is fantastic to actually show them right from the get go, even when you're the one giving the questions and really doing a lot of the driving there of the learning, you still show them the process. And then it's that you're slowly handing that process over to them throughout your year is what you're talking about here. And then they eventually get given the scaffold and then they're, they've still got their outcomes, I guess. Uh, do, you call, you call, do you call them standards in Canada? Or yeah, the, no, we go by outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, good. Yeah, great. Uh, so, yeah, so they've still got their outcomes that they're trying to address, but you then guide them through that process of coming up with their driving questions and their learning goals and then how they're going to go about the process of actually showcasing they're learning in relation to those outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what, what I'm hoping for is that students can not only learn that process in our time together across the school year, but they learn it so well that they can take that process to other elements of their lives, whether it's other classrooms, but most importantly, like what happens outside the classroom when the bell goes at three o'clock, you know, whatever they set their mind to, whether it's learning a musical instrument or language or, you know, getting their first job, they can look at this understanding by design and inquiry process and apply it to whatever they're setting their sights to. And, and I think that speaks to lifelong learning. You know, we really do want our students to be uh, lifelong learners, right? And, and not be complacent after they leave our schools. And I think helping them understanding the process and, and kind of drawing the curtain back on the process allows them to understand that it's just not for a mark. This is how people learn, you know, through wonderment and curiosity and intrigue and taking that to the real world. All right, so what are some of the things that you've seen teachers do that's when inquiry-based learning has kind of fallen flat, maybe, or it's just, it hasn't worked for them? What, what kind of things do that? Yeah, so I can speak to some personal examples, and then I can speak to some examples that I see in some of the schools that I work with. You know, a personal example is that early on in my career and in my understanding of inquiry, you know, I, I threw my kids into the deep end too fast and too soon without acquiring the proper skills and competencies to be successful with that agency over learning. So I know, Dan, you're going to share some resources uh, accompanying this podcast so teachers can look at some of those spaces on my website that I'm speaking to now. You know, really understanding that scaffolding and having students be reflective throughout learning so that it isn't just kicking them into the deep end. You know, there's this inquiry misconception that free inquiry is the best type of inquiry or free inquiry will result in the deepest type of learning. And that's just not the case. You can have a teacher-directed inquiry in the shallow end of the inquiry pool, if you will, that is deep learning and it's fantastic for students and, and students are intrigued and they're exploring questions and they're curious. And so really what it is, is providing that scaffolding across the year so that students are acquiring the skills and understandings necessary to have that agency over learning. I think another piece that I see fall short in some of the spaces that I, I visit is that, you know, I, I ask teachers to, re to reflect on who's doing the most of the talking in a classroom. And, and you know, some teachers will, will have a stopwatch just to kind of train their mindset to figure out, you know, is it me doing the most amount of talking? Is it, is it my students? Is it one particular student or a group of students? And really trying to figure out frameworks that provide everyone in the room an equitable chance to share their understanding and share their voice. And, and that's a tricky one. You know, it's taken me years to adopt frameworks in my classroom that allow every student to feel confident in a group setting to share their voice. But I think you can tell a lot about uh, the learning in a room 
by listening on, uh, uh, listening to who's doing the most amount of talking. And there's definitely time and space in the inquiry classroom for the teacher to be explicit and gather everyone's attention and talk to them or at them and guide them through things. But it can't, it can't be like that 90% of the time. There has to be a balance there. And then I think another way that I see inquiry fall short in some of the spaces that I visit is in the assessment piece. You know, I work with many schools where they get to this amazing place of inquiry where, you know, agency is rich and, you know, the questions are ungoogleable, those open-ended questions and, and there's valued research happening, you know, that the concepts are authentic to both the student and the curriculum. But the, the final frontier, if you will, is the assessment piece. And sadly, some teachers are still taking the assessment away from students rather than including student voice within the learning, within the process throughout the inquiry. And, you know, this was something I did early in my career as well. You know, I, I'd pack up all the student work and I'd take it home in my briefcase and then I'd stay up late at night doing all my assessment at home and then I'd bring those artifacts back to students the next day. And, and it, sadly, that assessment philosophy is completely void of student voice. And what I've learned is that assessment needs to be done in class with students, not to students, with students. And, and that's really a, a piece of the inquiry process that I think if you're going to go that route, it has to include a shift in your assessment practice. So it's not you doing the assessment of learning, it's you and the students. And, and that calls into question a number of things. Do students accurately self-assess? Do students feel courageous and, 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 and uh, you know, safe enough to assess and share their learning to others as well as the teacher? And are you providing space in the classroom to have assessment be a part of how you spend time together? You know, we truly uh, will show students what we value based on what we spend time doing with them. And if we value student assessment, we'll give them time in class to self-assess and peer assess and co-assess. So I think those are three, three Dan, that I've seen. And, and, you know, I can't value one over the other. It's, it's slowly nurturing these three so that we come to a more authentic inquiry space, if you will. Yeah, no, I think that's really fantastic. I like how you talked about there with the students being involved in the assessment. Can you give an actual example of what that then looks like? Like, how do you actually go about making sure the students are involved in that process? Yeah, you know, I'll give you a really big one. And, uh, you know, this could be a, a big shift for some teachers listening. But a couple of years ago, I, I just decided not to take my report cards home with me any longer. You know, it, my report card process was something that I used to do at home with my grade book. And then I'd come in with all my comments recorded and, and my percentages worked out. And that's what would go on the report card. And, and a couple of years ago, I just decided, no, I, I'm going to do my report cards with my students. I'm going to schedule 10 or 15 minutes with each student come report card period time. And we're going to co-write our report cards. I'm going to give them a preset uh, range of reflection questions. I'm going to ask them to look at their portfolio of learning and talk to a few items from their portfolio. And then I'm going to interview them. And as I interview them in this little uh, assessment conference, I'm going to write into my grade book exactly what it is that they say. I'm going to reread it to them and ask them if they're happy with it. And then that's what I'm going to send home to parents. And, and a, a huge shift that happened, Dan, was students went home and they showed their report card to their parents and they said, mom, dad, I want you to read that, that comment from Mr. McKenzie's class. And the mom or dad would say, why? And the student would say, because I actually wrote that with Mr. McKenzie. And, and you know, changing the mindset of the parent is a big piece of inquiry because a, a lot of parents didn't experience inquiry as a student. And so, you know, now that their students, their children, sorry, are experiencing inquiry, parents naturally have a lot of questions. And what better advocate for this shifting role between the teacher and the student than the child themselves going home and telling mom or dad, 
how fulfilling it was to have a voice in the assessment process. So that's kind of a, an outcome specific example. You know, it happens day to day to day in my classroom, you know, students having voice and reflecting on their learning, whether it's thinking routines, co-designing rubrics, uh, co-designing co the course syllabus. That's something I do at the start of every course is we co-design what the course is going to look like. So students genuinely have a voice in how we're going to operate and where we're going to go to next. So that by the time we get to that co-writing of report cards, it's not a shock to them. They've been doing it since the very first day of the course, if you will. Okay. So what can our listeners then do this week to kind of get started with the inquiry-based learning process or the model, I guess, how do they go about getting started? What do they do to begin with? Yeah, you know, it sounds like a plug, but visit my website and and have a look at some of the resources there. You know, my research uh, throughout my career and, and my graduate work focused on identifying the barriers to implementing inquiry at the K-12 setting. And, and there are three barriers. And the first barrier is really having a common definition of inquiry. You know, Dan, you and I are talking and we're talking IBL. But you and I could have two vastly different ideas in our heads about what inquiry-based learning is all about, just as the listeners could have very different definitions of inquiry. And so, you know, really understanding what inquiry is and the words that we use to define inquiry will dictate our, our behavior in the classroom. It's critical. If you can imagine a school where teachers have different understandings of IBL, that's so problematic for the student. The most important stakeholder is going to feel confused and anxious and uncertain. So I would suggest starting with some of those resources I provide. That swimming pool graphic is, is a helpful one uh, to start really clarifying what inquiry is and then slowly adding on to your understanding over time. You know, although inquiry is a big shift, I'd encourage listeners to take small steps towards making that big shift a reality. You know, whether it's playing with the role of questions in your classroom, we haven't talked about provocations. I love the role of provocations in the classroom to engage curiosity and wonderment with our students. Uh, you know, really embedding an authentic research process. There are so many little baby steps we can take. But Dan, I think it all starts with having a clear understanding of the definition of inquiry and the types of inquiry. So teachers can begin to adopt that language in their teaching practice. All right. And so what is your clear definition of the inquiry-based process? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Well, it's a, it's a dynamic process uh, where questions are explored. The curriculum is explored and discovered and not covered. And the role of the teacher and the student shifts where the teacher becomes more of a facilitator and the student experiences more agency over learning. Uh, and, and the questions that are being explored are authentic to the student. You know, there's a real world application to the curriculum and what we're learning about. And so there's not a, an either or. It's not like we do inquiry and we don't explore the curriculum. It's how do we weave those two pieces together, inquiry and our curriculum? I know that's not a succinct definition, Dan, but this is a conversation. And, uh, and definitely it's one in which ever evolves as we continue to unpack this topic, you and I here on the podcast. Well, beautiful. Thank you so much for giving up your time this morning, Trevor, or oh, this afternoon for you over in Canada. <laughs> Uh, I really, I really enjoy it. This is great. I love being able to network and chat with uh, professional educators around the world who are really doing some remarkable things in their classrooms. And you know, you help a lot of teachers around the world uh, to implement this process. So I really appreciate you've given up your time. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for hosting me and for all the listeners. Thanks for uh, joining us in this conversation. And and Dan, let's do this again sometime soon. This has been great.
No worries. Sounds great. Um, so if you want to come and have a look at the show notes for this episode, just go to teacherspd.net slash 47. There'll be links there to all the things that Trevor mentioned, that swimming pool diagram, that uh, will be links to his books, and there'll be links to his website as well, where you can go and find out more about the inquiry-based learning process. So thank you again, Trevor, and hopefully we'll chat again soon. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it.